Welcome to Blackbird episode number 47. My name is James, and today I am bringing to you someone you might not have heard from before unless you listen to Thad Russell's podcast pretty religiously, or you just happen to stumble across this weird podcast called The Perfume Nationalist. Jack, The Perfume Nationalist, hosts this show with his brother and frequently with guests where they talk about perfume and movies and the philosophy surrounding those things. Jack is firmly on the right of the political spectrum, and is a sassy and spiteful Republican. Jack is also going to be a featured speaker at Thad Russell's RU Texas, which you can sign up for at blackbirdpodcast.com slash RU Texas. I think you're really going to like this kind of freewheeling and funny conversation between me and Jack. We are both gay men who have kind of left the gay movement, so to speak. Before we get into it with Jack, let me tell you again about Liberty Classroom. Tom Woods started Liberty Classrooms several years ago to bring economics and history that they didn't teach you in school to the masses. Since then, it has grown beyond just history and economics to include philosophy courses, logic, even sci-fi and history, political philosophy, Western civilization, and new courses are added frequently. Head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom to sign up today. I highly recommend just springing for the master membership because I was renewing my basic membership every year to the point where it became cost ineffective to keep renewing. The master membership is quite a bit more expensive, but it is a lifetime membership that never expires and you get access to every course as they're released. Additionally, you get access to monthly Q&A sessions with Tom and some of the scholars and professors who teach these classes. So once again, head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom to sign up today. And with that, here is my conversation with Jack, the Perfume Nationalist. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. It's a Sunday morning and we're both kind of underslept and have bedhead and stuff. So I'm glad the video is not (laughs) produced. Why don't you, for the people who aren't familiar with you, go ahead and introduce yourself. I am uh, Jack from the Perfume Nationalist podcast, which I co-host with my brother who goes by the name Orton Aper. Nice. And so the Perfume Nationalist is like a, God, it's so weird. It's the weirdest podcast I know. And it's great though. The episodes are like two hours or more long. They're the, lo- they're the length of a movie. And you guys first, well, it, the old format was like you would introduce the perfume of the week or whatever, and then talk about a movie forever. It seems like in more recent episodes, the perfume it just kind of is mentioned more in passing than anything else. No, it's it's still the same format where it's roughly divided into two parts, the perfume okay. segment and the uh, the media segment. But sometimes the perfumes are less interesting uh, mm-hmm. and there isn't that much to say about them, but that's always how it is. I mean, if there's a if there's a guest or whatever, then we're which now there always is, yeah. um, I kind of talk to them for a while before talking about the perfume because okay, usually most people don't have much vocabulary for sense but yeah. it's still the same format I the only one where it's like out of order is the bronze age mindset one where i think we talk about the book first and then the scent and that's like the second episode we ever recorded oh okay i think that the banter with the guests is probably where i'm where i was thinking that the, yeah. the format had changed um how did how did you get into perfume i always liked scents. i started wearing patchouli really really young when i was like 13 or 14 and then Luca Turin published Perfumes, the A to Z Guide, and I believe 2007, 2008. And that generated a lot of interest in perfumes because it's a very like highly readable, clever review book of perfumes that you can just keep by the toilet or the bathtub and just read again and again. And it kind of tells you the, the history of fragrance and the different genres of it and everything. And... Um, but one of my friends, one of my best friends, got into that book and started ordering samples of weird niche perfumes. I just didn't know this whole world existed. Or that like men could wear women's perfumes, or that perfume and cologne are the same thing. It's just gendered marketing terms. But that was around 2008. Okay. So do you have like particular nostalgic affinity for certain scents? 
Oh yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with them. Um, and that's like all I think about throughout my day. By nostalgic affinity, do you mean like I associate them? Like what your mom wore or something like that? My mom didn't wear that much. She wears a lot now because I give it to her and I've I've gotten everyone into it, but she just kind of had the 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 requisite bottle of white diamonds that most women in the 90s had. No one in my family wore all that much. Uh, she sold Avon, so we had some Avon stuff around, but the whole larger world of weird perfumes, and especially the 80s ones where it reached kind of a fever pitch of excess and insanity, Yeah, that's really my favorite era. I didn't know anything about that before. My mom wore Eternity. My parents, yeah, that's mm. what it was. My parents got each other a bottle of Eternity for Men from my mom to my dad and Eternity for Women from my dad to my mom every year for Christmas when I was a kid. <laughs> and then I asked my mom uh, in preparation what her other scent was because she wore Eternity like as a daily wear. And then when she was going out, like if they were going to do something special, she would wear uh, Escada. Which, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I don't, I've never smelled the original Escada, but yeah, Eternity. That's what all women wore in the 90s, all like teachers. Yeah, my elementary school, which I, I grew up in Texas, so you can imagine how just fragrant the hallway always was because of the <laughs> big-haired old ladies that were teaching us. Mm -hmm. It was always Obsession, which is another Calvin Klein scent, I think, right? Yeah, Obsession came before Eternity. Okay. Obsession was like the the sexual, like racy one with like underage Kate Moss nude in the ads and oh stuff. My God. Obsession is a lot more like sweet, I guess, than eternity. I don't know if sweet's the right word. Cloudy maybe is a great word for me. It gives me a headache now. Like if I <laughs> if I smell that, if I smell that, first it reminds me of Miss Johnson, my favorite second grade teacher ever. But then also like it, it gives me a little bit of a headache. So mm. anyway, it, it's cool to hear you like just kind of wax poetic about these about these fragrances. Patchouli also, for some reason, has a nostalgic effect on me, even though my mom wasn't a hippie. Like, I, I don't know where I ever smelled patchouli when I was a kid. Does it have, like, are there are there fragrances that just incorporate that? Oh, yeah. It's one of the most used, uh, like, base note ingredients because it's so tenacious. Um, and it's it's extremely popular. People, there's sort of a received opinion that people think they don't like patchouli but everyone actually likes it mm. like chanel coco mademoiselle which has been like the most popular women's fragrance for the last 20 years is a huge patchouli fragrance they just don't know what it is they just kind of think they're supposed to dislike that because they heard jokes on like nbc shows about like yeah. dirty hippies and fish concerts and like <laughs> this all these really dated references that don't apply to today mm -hmm stereotypes that you don't see around as much anymore but yeah patchouli is if i can be said to have like a signature scent everything that i like uh is full of patchouli um and perfume nationalist is a very uh classic 60s counterculture podcast and patchouli uh comes from the like mind expanding elements of the 60s so it's a symbol of everything we do <laughs> So if someone were interested in getting into fragrance and perfumes, is there like a is there like a beginner model that you would that you would recommend someone get a bottle of something that they might not have heard of or something like that? Let's see. Everybody asks me all day every day. I'm looking at my shelf. I tell guys to get Chanel Anteus, which is quite affordable and quite wonderful and there's just it's an 80 cent so it gets you like acclimated to 80s type scents. But it's also very timeless and elegant and modern, and it's just cool. And it has like a crazy vaporwave uh, commercial that everyone can get into. I find that Terry Mugler Angel is probably the most popular one that we talk about because everybody, especially with guys, because everybody can get into the advertising world that was created around it. Like the ads from the 90s are just high art with Jerry Hall in this blue desert clasping the star bottle and the scent is so is so unusual and so weird another patchouli scent uh but it's very masculine even though it's a women's scent and that because of the aesthetic universe surrounding it is probably the ultimate kind of like introductory like red pill <laughs> <laughs> speaking of red pill so you're the other name the other word in your title is nationalist how do you define nationalism? And would you, like, are you a nationalist in the same sense that, say, Donald Trump is a nationalist, or is it something different? I don't, 
I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's like a, it's a joke, uh, mm. but it's a joke. Like the name Marilyn Manson, it's just something that pops into my head, and it's worked. It definitely like gets attention and makes people instantly angry. Uh, <laughs> and, but because they think they've discovered something about which there's no like intentional humor, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but am I a nationalist in the sense of like Republicans who? believe in borders like normal people yeah yeah <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just like a boomer republican do you vote republican would you call yourself a republican oh, yeah. big r yeah cool and i don't care about um policy pol the intricacies of politics the news cycle anything i'll vote yeah. republican for the rest of my life is revenge on liberals for the 2010s it's the technicality of pulling the lever that i love um, and not waffling and being, you know, Bernie Sanders and just all this, like, <laughs> I'm an empathetic person. No, I want to just pull that lever straight ticket Republican because liberals have ruined the world in the 2010s and they continue to. And uh, Tell me about that. What have they done? What's the shit that they've, that they've pulled on us? Well, using the word woke kind of, I don't like that word because it minimizes the problem <laughs> and makes it makes it seem like something of a joke when it's not. But Democrats have been on a decade-long mission to erase the entirety of art and truth and beauty and culture and freedom and free speech under the guise of meddling Puritan social justice. And it's made everyone's lives terrible. It's gotten gotten us where we are now with a superstitious, easily manipulated, dumb, uh, religious-minded population constantly fearful of saying the wrong word. It's a religion. I mean, it's an evil, false religion, a nihilistic religion that consumes itself. Uh, the entire concern for social justice. I started noticing it and noticing that I was on like the wrong side in the very early 2010s when um, I began to notice that my friends, female friends especially, had this like antagonism towards the concept of free speech, mm -hmm. which had never occurred to me before. How could anyone not believe in free speech? Because like at my age, 34, they still kind of taught you in school, like the whole will defend the right to what you have to say to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to the death, whatever the phrase is. But then I started noticing uh, people going to college and going through the Pink Floyd, the wall meat grinder of academia and coming out with this idea that, um, that what we need is more censorship, uh, which is ridiculous. And they, all, they came out with this antagonism towards old movies, towards music, toward, they thought that, they started to think that movies were um, real and would come off the screen and re-rape the audience if there was a rape scene in them. This kind of like superstitious-minded stuff. So that's where it started for me, and then it got worse and worse, and all of my all of my fears were confirmed. This all uh, culminated in uh, COVID nineteen, which was the biggest like liberal liberal project which they wouldn't have been able to do without putting all the the woke stuff in place before yeah. and ensuring the population is scared to acknowledge basic reality i think for me like i've always leaned libertarian-ish like okay in in the george w bush years i was liberal because that's kind of what you did if you wanted to be anti-war you know nobody knew who ron paul was in 2002 so i was a howard dean guy and then i like slowly but surely moved farther and farther right and then consciously started calling myself libertarian. But, and like, I don't remember when it was, whenever, whenever Brendan Eich was raked again, raked across the coals or whatever the, whatever the phrase is for not supporting gay marriage. And so everybody, all, all the gays were, were, were boycotting Firefox. And so I switched to Google Chrome, just like, you know, all the, all the other good, the good little gays. And you know, I felt so like I was doing something by boycotting Firefox as a, as a web browser because their CEO was, was awful. Yeah. <laughs> but then, I don't know, it must have been later that year or maybe like a year later or something like that. It came out that Target was giving money to like a community organizing charity 
that also supported Republican candidates for for office. And so all the gays had to had to boycott Target. We were we were not we. I wasn't part of it. I was still shopping at Target. And um, I was at, I remember vividly, I was at a function for this gay church that I went to here in Minneapolis. The denomination is called the Metropolitan Community Church. And it is the first like Christian denomination that was founded by gay people for gay people. And so we were in a parking lot somewhere about to go to church, like to the service. And I said, I'm going to stop at Target on my way and grab, you know, whatever it was that I needed to grab. And the young adult minister looked at me and he goes, Target? And I said, yeah. And he goes, bad gay. And like pointed Ew. at me. I know. And pointed Gross. at me. Like, like he was literally scolding me. And it was at that moment that I realized that these are not my people. <laughs> yeah, they're not They're not your people. I remember things like that happening, like back in the days when like Facebook mattered and people were on Facebook, very early 2010s. Uh, and I was sort of more involved in the like local gay scene, I guess. Yeah. I would get these messages from like scolding, hectoring, busybody, gay DJ type scene people. <laughs> I got one that was like, was like, hi, I just saw your feed and I'm concerned that you're being a bad representative for the community. And I don't have any kind of like self-doubt that most people have. So of course I was just like, that's wrong. That's the that's the bad side. <laughs> Those are the bad people. <laughs> I would never want to be a gay little loser like yeah. this. But yeah, just the Puritan meddling busybodies. Like imagine doing this. And there were all sorts of little signs that it was coming. Again, like everyone I knew, like a girl, a close friend, I remember got mad at me for making fun of like a, a feminist, like Jezebel article that said that there should be trigger warnings about the ro gender roles in old movies before all old movies. I said, that's ridiculous. And then she sent me the, the furious message. It was all like, they control you through their little messages. Like what you're doing is bad for, bad for the community, Jack. You know, just this, <laughs> everybody becomes a Ayn Rand villain, Ellsworth Toohey, like the second you, start doing that but i was like i was made a pariah pretty early on in like mm. 2015 and i didn't have any liberal friends after that <laughs> the election sealed the deal before trump won it was considered a kind of like funny eccentricity to maybe maybe like him and support him but then when he actually won it was like the next day they were all like you know the, all the all the media outlets were like you have to cut every nazi out of your life yeah. and personally tell them off to save the children in the cages. The ch children in the cages are waiting for you to tell your friends, all, you know, that kind of, when they activate the populace to like yeah. scold everyone at Thanksgiving, but. Make them feel know. part of something again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do, do we agree that the religious right is no longer a force? Oh yeah, that doesn't exist. That's, uh, yeah. I make fun of Gen Xers a lot because Gen Xers, you know, bless their hearts, but they still tend to operate on this like dated, inaccurate, ridiculous notion that they got from Hollywood movies that there's like an evangelical right that's like pulling the strings and has yeah. power. First of all, it never did. Even at the peak of that sort of thing, uh, which I guess was like post 9-11 Bush era, like they didn't have control of the entire media apparatus <laughs> and smartphones and social media didn't exist so there's never, like, people always try to do this kind of, like, both sides, like, liberals are the evangelicals of today thing. No, liberals have infinitely more power than Christians ever did. Hmm. So it's not, it's not accurate to compare them. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of, of social justice explicitly being a religion, uh, I mean, that's clear to anyone. They don't even say... Like, you know how liberals used to kind of be atheists and they would yeah. be like, of course God doesn't exist. There was that kind of like casual like atheism that was around with normies. That doesn't exist anymore and you don't hear them saying that because they all know that they worship black people. And I'm not being funny. They, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's an entire religion based around worshiping like mythical black people that they've made up and being punished for original sin against black people <laughs> and like the climate too, to a lesser degree, but they've intertwined all of that. So that whiteness affects the climate <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, they all know that they worship black people. 
So I guess the question I was going to ask, though, is if the religious right were still as influential in the Republican Party, and I, I mean, were they were they never even influential in the Republican Party uh, mm. as opposed to the society at large? They had an entire they had the entire media making fun of them, even if they were influential. Like, mm. I mean, all the like uh, the PMRC like music censorship stuff in the eighties, which seems so quaint and small considering yeah. the censorship now. But people try to bring that up as like just a Republican issue. It was Tipper Gore. Yeah, I <laughs> it was, was Democrats. Say that. It, it was really... like, and the Clintons were like you know, all obsessed with like video game violence and censorship and all of that too. Like, okay. But there, certainly there were people who were outraged by certain things. I mean, Rick Santorum existed and he was really a Senator. Yeah, there were, there were, but I mean, as that went on, you saw them elevating like fake stuff like mm -hmm. Westboro Baptist church as though it's this like real, like, I'm not like, that's basically just a little house where a family runs a grift, like doing frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. But you know how like for like five years in the media, they were like, Westboro Baptist Church is spreading everywhere. They it's made this, entire documentaries. About, or not, yeah. It wasn't a documentary. <laughs> then, it was a dramatization, but you think it's a documentary, or at least I think of it as one. So, so just like now, how now they present this idea in movies and media and everything that there are... There's like the Ku Klux Klan waiting around every corner, like underground, this like organized network of white supremacists and whatnot. This totally made up thing. I mean, the evangelicals, like the Santorums and everything that existed, like the the media liked those because they could utilize them and you know, create this ambient threat of Christians. But I don't know, I just don't see anything in the past at all uh, in America being as repressive as what we're now operating under mm -hmm. because of the control of uh, social media and the way that, uh, the, you know, they get to you through your phone <laughs> all day, every day, that they can just activate you as they do with COVID. Yeah. Do you think then that, I mean, how, what are your thoughts on like the future as far, I mean, right now you and I both, are being labeled domestic terrorists by the Biden administration. Is that like a very real threat or is it a paper tiger? I think of that whole thing where, where you know, COVID and domestic terrorism and all that stuff and also QAnon and like Trump's going to be re-inaugurated on August whatever date uh, and all that stuff. I, I think of those both as psyops invented by the intelligence Community. You're correct. QAnon is fake and gay, and that was always apparent to me from the start. Yeah. And there were all, there were always those people that tried to make that cute. Like they're like, I love conspiracy theories, and you know, <laughs> like it, people have something to believe in, you know. And um, no, I saw that for what it is right from the start, which was uh, an operation designed to make Trump voters look ridiculous, mm -hmm. and that's what it panned out to be because what do you know as soon as trump's out they have all the hbo documentaries prepared <laughs> you know to just send out yeah. the next day yeah like that's all fake and stupid and um i'm just very much about people being normal and being in the real world uh and not i hate conspiracy theories i hate when plain speaking is done away with for these like fantastical little like ridiculous tangents. I'm not a fan of Alex Jones and that sort of thing, but uh, let's see, is it a real threat? Specifically the Biden administration's uh, domestic terrorism, like, you know, the war on terror coming home thing. Yeah, that's, that's a real threat. I don't listen to the news. I don't think about the news. I I mean, on January 7th or whatever, after they, or it was like a week later that they'd crafted the narrative, you know, because the silly little thing happened and they crafted the narrative that uh, then it was the worst thing that's ever happened yeah. in the United States. And they had they had to immediately put every single person who voted for Donald Trump or was a regular re registered Republican in prison and, you know, cancel their bank accounts and everything. Re-education the, the biggest threat is this, this media monopoly, this top-down media monopoly that where they cancel your bank accounts and, you know, they, they have their little journalist operatives doing their little, 
viral cancel pieces to stir up hatred against you. And the social media censorship is a major problem, but so far nothing has really changed in that respect. If anything, like Twitter is like less censored than it was a couple of years ago. Once they got rid of Trump, and sh- that was a show of power, you know, mm-hmm. on a- on election day, they did it in front of everyone to show, oh, there's no dissent from this. Once they got rid of him, it seems that they like backed off a little, but they do keep the constant ambient threat going um, and they keep it intertwined with COVID because the boldest thing the liberals did last year was when in the middle of the summer, when they unveiled that the real virus was white supremacy. Yeah. You remember that? It was about yeah. July. Yeah. There was, there was the early part of COVID before where everyone was kind of excited and together. And that was before the Democrats like narrativized it or figured out what they were going to do. Uh, and then in the middle of the year, they unveiled that the real virus was white supremacy. And it worked. The audacity of that is incredible because now people think that going against uh, lockdowns and COVID stuff means you're a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they really conflated the two. The, the, the worst thing. I, so I live in Minneapolis. Um, we just happened to be in Dallas uh, during the, the weekend of riots following George Floyd's death. But the next day, that so the day after Memorial Day, that Tuesday was the day that our governor lifted the the lockdowns. For a little bit, we were we didn't even have a mask mandate, so like we were just back to normal for a while. Obviously, they had plexiglass up and all that other stuff, but uh, it was like I I don't know if the governor like understood that he had created this this tinderbox and that those riots weren't about George Floyd; they were about a bunch of pent up rage, or if he really was just rewarding us for for responding according to like because he's a, he's you know he's a good card carrying Democrat too rewarding us for responding to a police killing in the way that the Democrats wanted us to like I, I don't know if he was part of this longer this longer narrative of yeah white supremacy is the real virus or if it was just like a, okay I, I see now that I've gone too far I don't know to what extent the like local authorities and like the people on the streets are aware of <laughs> of the narrative that's being dispersed. I know that their brains are literally fried from four years of, uh, of its abuse, especially of old people because old people kind of still believe, have some trust in like TV and yeah. news media. Like they think it's kind of real, even if they're Republicans they don't get that it's literally a soap opera without any art to it, mm-hmm. with cliffhangers, abandoned plot lines, uh, recast characters, all of this. Uh, they they think that they need to stay informed, informed of something, but really, you just get these plot lines fed to you that are immediately abandoned when they they uh, are no longer beneficial to the people doing them, like. Remember the sudden plot line about plastic straws and like baby turtles? <laughs> the turtles nose. Tur- yeah. the, the turtle. Yeah. Like there yeah. was like there was like a countdown timer on the screen about like the baby turtles are gonna get to the plastic straws. Yeah. And you know, you'd never heard of plastic straws being bad ever before. But that whole summer they were covering up something, so they dispersed this plastic straw narrative. <laughs> Immediately yeah. this like lesbian woman like killed herself with one of the metal straws on yes. accident. Um <laughs> man, I posted a, a- like just in passing, I posted a picture of myself drinking a milkshake with a metal straw because you know I have these metal metal tumblers that come with the metal straw, and uh, <laughs> someone swiped up on my story and was like, "Hey, kudos for using a metal straw!" I'm like, "It came with a cup, dude." Like, I won't seriously, use one I, anymore. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not virtue signaling. Seriously, yeah. like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's embarrassing. Um, but they, I mean, all everything that they did last year was designed to make you crazy it was designed to wear down the population Mm -hmm. to the point where no one knows what anything is what is real um things that are obviously logically incompatible such that covid is will spread if you live your life or leave the house or whatever but the 
bust in artificial race riots that they sent to every city. Do not spread the virus, <laughs> which is yeah. a narrative they're still going with. Um, also, the way that they stole the election by changing voting laws and uh, doing this moral imperative to mail-in voting and censoring the sitting president on social media as it was happening, and then admitting to it all in that Time Magazine article that uh, refers to what they're, you know, the giant conglomeration of concerned people saving democracy and the shadowy corporate. It's like if a, if a Republican published that, it would be called a, like a right-wing conspiracy theory nut, an anti-Semite, all of this. But Time Magazine published it and they admitted to everything that yeah. they did in just different language and like newspeak. So it was all designed to make people crazy and and scared to question publicly what's happening. And, and I had learned throughout the Trump administration, like, how to deal with being a, like, quote unquote, dissident in my day to day life and like still have to work around people like I, I had finally like gotten acclimated to that. But then they did covid adding another layer of like physical rape where there's the mask on your place on your face and you can't speak out against anything of it, you, you know, any aspect of it, or you'll be flagged as a dangerous dissident spreading disease and they'll give you hell at work. They just keep adding to it. Yeah. Well, and not just at work, but like at everywhere. Uh, yeah. You, you worked through the pandemic, right? You're an essential worker. Is that right? Yeah, I'm the only person on all of Twitter that has like a job that you have to show up for and clock in. That's yeah, unglamorous. <laughs> I'm in a re remote work position anyway. Like I, I like it, I, I started job. working remote, you know, way before COVID. So, yeah. and it's to be honest, it's awful. Like when you can't, when you especially, and I, not to not to not to compare it to an essential worker, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, the when I can't essential workers, <laughs> when I feel trapped in my house, working from home is definitely not nearly as glamorous as it was when I interviewed for this position. I, I got pretty stir crazy last year. It was awful. Not to, I mean, you are, you are the hero. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the essential worker, but you have to, you have to uh, learn to love your lifestyle. See COVID worked on um, people with what I call email jobs, work from home jobs, because most of them, especially the liberal ones, that was already their lifestyle. Like, yeah. like rich people, most of them don't have any like real interests or anything. They just kind of like float around and order like $45 Uber Eats three times a day for each meal uh, and stay in their little apartment and maybe go out for a jog where they wear the mask for 30 minutes performatively. Uh, but that was already their lifestyle was eating the bugs and living in the pod. So, <laughs> so the, they didn't see the big problem. Yeah. It's like the movie High Rise. Have you seen that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the 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 upper floor people who just have no idea that other people exist, like they, get, uh -huh. you know, their groceries are delivered, and you know, it's just that's and that was made in what twenty fifteen something like that. Yeah, and I I started working at the Ballardian uh, condominium right when the pandemic kicked oh. off. So I was thinking of that. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, uh, I did a. So yeah, let's get into movies a little bit because your your podcast um, is also a media criticism show. And you and your guests are fantastic at like analyzing stuff, making drawing drawing connections and things like that. I've been a guest on a movie review podcast a couple of times, and I admit at the beginning of each episode that I'm terrible at watching movies. I don't I, I like I watch it purely for entertainment. First of all, I so I have a friend who likes to read novels, and he's always he's always reading a book. And people who see reading as a virtue including myself, always say, oh man, I wish I, I wish I read more. And he always corrects them and says, look, I, I, I read as a hobby. Like I don't, I don't see it as virtuous that I read a lot. Like you, you know, you, you go do your thing, what you're interested in. Do you feel that way about movies or do you think that people should watch movies in the same way that you do? Mm, let's see to all of that. I do think reading is virtuous. I am a person who doesn't read that fast and wishes that I read more, mm -hmm. but I feel like for like today, I read plenty more than most. Should people watch movies? Yeah, to get a sense of history. I mean, honestly, I don't know. If you're interested in cinema, then yes. But I often really like and get along with people who have no interest in movies. Do I think mm -hmm. you should watch modern movies? No. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll 
go to the movie theater just as something to do. That's what I always liked doing. I'll see like the worst crap and uh, have zero expectations and just want a change of location and to be in a dark theater away from my phone. Yeah. But I don't think everyone needs to be interested in movies, especially considering the level of media criticism that we've become acclimated to in the last 10 years where uh, dim, uh, often young people think that their little bug opinions matter. Like, they, they, you know, the basic kind of way that people approach movies now is to have a contrarian take on it. Like, to mm-hmm. find something that w- is considered great or was considered great in the past, and then to log on to your little letterbox and, say, and be the one who says, I didn't think it was that good. Which is the reflex, you can feel kind of important that way. Yeah. Like, you, you are the one who discovered that this is not good. Which sometimes, if you actually know what you're talking about, you can be correct. But... It, that's really just from people going through like lackluster uh, college education where they kind of tell you that to go through everything with a red pen and highlight the how bad the role of women and the lack of diversity and all of this is and how problematic it is. So people approach movies in the wrong way. They don't know how to read an image. They don't know how to intuit anything. Um, they don't know... They don't approach it with reverence. They don't approach someone like Hitchcock or Kubrick uh, with reverence, knowing that the art is better than them, which is something that I always did as a like young cinephile. Like I was interested in movies because because I knew that people had made these great works mm-hmm. that would that I could learn something from. And that's not a perspective that you see anywhere because it's all about like because greatness is problematic. Greatness implies that there's a hierarchy of quality, yeah, which is bad. So everything must just be graded on how effective it is as social engineering and uh, propaganda. I think more, more like smart and uh, funny and irreverent people should watch movies, but um, I think reading books, like actual fiction written before the last like 30 years is better for you than watching movies. <laughs> Are there any good movies? that have come out recently? I've enjoyed a few. Okay, my my like timeline of when cinema ended. It officially ended with Titanic, which was the last great golden age. <laughs> Gold, it was like a reprisal of the golden age of Hollywood. So that's kind of the end. And then everything since then has been um, an interesting coda. Like there's some good codas to cinema. Like Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac is a, uh, is a, uh, very one of the best movies of the 2010s that's really underappreciated uh because it's so large and so weird and so challenging that no one wants to approach it so no nobody tries uh Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria remake uh and Blade Runner 2049 kind of snuck under the mm-hmm. radar with obvious uh reactionary content or qualities that kind of went against the grain of 2010's liberal uh, programming. I need to rewatch Blade Runner 2049. I saw it in the theater, and I hadn't watched the original Blade Runner in so long, and also it was just so slow and plotting mm. that I didn't get anything out of it. And I feel like I would if if I actually went into it with you know brain cell functioning rather than just watching this movie that was that I you know took as boring. Um, it's very because, critical of modern women. <laughs> That's is it really. Much- yeah, which it's fortunately it's so boring that it kind of like coasted through on this no- nostalgia wave, and people are just kind of like, hey, "I was bored," but uh, yeah, it's super misogynist uh, huh. in a good way. Uh, so is Suspiria, but Twin Peaks: The Return was also uh, a great end to cinema. Um, okay. Like, did you watch the four-hour uh, like summation of Twin Peaks: The Return? Um, God, I can't remember the name of the guy. It's a, it's a dude who does like a perfect impersonation of the FBI director played <laughs> by the writer whose name I can't remember right no, now. No, I haven't heard of that. Okay, it's fantastic. It's like four hours long and it totally it totally explains God, what's what's the what's the name of the the fucking guy that does Twin Peaks, the the creator of the show. David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um it does it's basically like a like like hermeneutics of David Lynch's work and how Twin Peaks: The Return is like the apotheosis of 
David Lynch's previous work as a writer, but also like his philosophical work. Um, he's given lots of speeches on, you know, uh, on on philosophy. It's very fascinating. I'm gonna I'm gonna link to that actually because I think everybody anybody who's watched Twin Peaks should should watch it, especially if you were fucked up by that one episode where it's just the radio broadcast. Of- <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. The uh, the return really is like a summation of his entire career, yeah. and people recognize its greatness, but they don't recognize the full scope of it. That it's this 25 year project that's just. It's the the fact that that happened is the most amazing and important thing that has happened in my lifetime because I was like an old school Twin Peaks fan. I got into it like around like 2001. And at that point, uh, he said, no, 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 there's no way I will ever go back to this stuff ever again. And then as time went on, you started to hear murmurings. And then sure enough, as Laura Palmer says in the Red Room, I'll see you in 25 years. There it appeared once again. And it expanded that fictional universe to a degree like this intermittent interdimensional degree never before seen uh it's evil and scary in a way that nothing else is it's so obsessed with death and like aging and it's just rich and wonderful and psychedelic and a main thing a main like movie value or media value i try to promote is that everyone should learn to enjoy being bored I think that people are very <laughs> confident of their short attention spans, which aren't really real. It's just laziness. Like with the start of the 2010s, when it became popular to be like a nerd or comic book nerd mm-hmm. and be like, I don't like this like lofty, like highbrow type stuff. I'm just a salt of the earth Marvel comics nerd. And that's what I've always been. And this became the dominant kind of like archetype for what people thought of themselves as. Um, and it, it encourages a kind of laziness because everything that's above your Marvel content, is, it's it's dated at this point to make fun of like Marvel content too. Uh, but anything that's above that is like pretentious and people are lying to themselves. And I really think people should commit to a work, uh, consume it in order in its entirety and see what they come up with. I think people are... They're scared to approach more challenging stuff like experimental books and whatnot, uh, experimental movies, long art movies, because they they have this idea that they're supposed to have like the proper education to deal with it. And it's like, no, you scan your eyes over the page and then you see what you came up with, see what you remember. You don't need any kind of an education to do that. But... People should challenge themselves, do things for the sake of it, and enjoy being bored. Like, everything is just too stimulating and fast-paced and, like, curated to the audience's needs like and desires. Like, there needs to be some, like, fascism of people being told <laughs> what, what they need to watch, okay? <laughs> well, okay, so along, that, along those lines, I personally am the kind of person who falls asleep, like, the second the movie starts, if it's not, if it's not a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not that's not entirely true. Like, I, I I sat through Magnolia the other day, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. But it's an, that's an exciting movie in its own right. Like, there's not a lot of boring content in in Magnolia. So, I guess the question would be like, are there uh, is there like a sequence of movies that you might recommend just off the top of your head for someone who doesn't enjoy being bored but might want to enjoy being bored? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking around my room. Well, I, you know, I I think everyone needs to watch and read Gone with the Wind, first thing, uh, which is not boring at all. But in terms of like media recommendations, I think we would all be in a better place if people uh, read Polly's sexual persona from start to finish and read (laughs) Gone with the Wind from start to finish and watched Gone with the Wind. And then with just that, with just those three things, you'll be a changed person. Huh. You'll you'll look at the world totally differently. So Camille has been Camille Paglia has been on my like to read list for years ever ever since I first heard her interviewed on some podcast or another. So Gone with the Wind that's a problematic movie. We're not allowed to watch Is that it? anymore. Yeah, we're, it's it's racist. Oh yeah, well that's a myth. Okay, the Gone with the Wind has this erroneous reputation that I think originated in the seventies where like small-minded academics were angling for tenure. So 
So they all of them did those papers on like, here's why Leslie Marmon Silko's ceremony is superior to anything a white person has ever done. And, you know, like, and like feminist reappraisals of Gone with the Wind and its problematic content, all that. So those people are responsible for that. But what Gone with the Wind actually is, is a an acerbic, venomous, brilliant 20s flapper satire. <laughs> like Margaret Mitchell is a is more in the like Dorothy Parker mode of like a brilliant, funny, weird, early liberated woman. And it's also a just a brutal, the most brutal satire of women that's ever been written. The race stuff is all there, and it's all obviously like quote unquote problematic. But but doesn't that make you want to read it more? <laughs> like who, who doesn't want to? Who doesn't want to um, uh, experience something that's forbidden? And you can draw your own conclusions there. But like Margaret Mitchell, as happens with Polya, as happens with Ayn Rand is one of these like galaxy brain like brilliant women writers who has been excluded from the woman obsessed canon mm. because there are problems so like small minded myopic little middling like woman thinkers of post judith judith butler whatever will be elevated as brilliant and uh Someone with the scope of vision of Polya or Ayn Rand or Margaret Mitchell will just be dismissed as, oh, she doesn't count, you know? And it's really funny that I often get criticized for, you know, like being supposedly a misogynist when I'm constantly elevating the work of women and all of my idols are women. <laughs> and my biggest influences are women. Yeah. And I mean, you, you I, host a podcast about women's perfume. I host a pop. My podcast is all about women. <laughs> it's, it's like everything. But so, yeah, that's the most like small minded little dumb criticism you could possibly have. But because I'm constantly championing women, like women artists who have been excluded from the canon or like disposed of or not recognized for their brilliance. Your uh, your interpretation of Hitchcock's treatment of women. Because all you hear about Hitchcock now is that he was just awful to his female stars. And that might be true. But also, like, the way that he wrote women is so unique. And, like, well, I don't know. I mean, talk about it a little bit. You guys were just talking about The Birds and uh, the, the the name of the movie escapes me. It's the, it's the name of a woman. Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock has been uh, called a misogynist since all of the feminist criticism started in the 70s and it's true i don't think like for me the word misogyny doesn't have like a, an innate value because the way it's thrown around thrown around now is like the word racism it's just to brand any criticism as like bigotry and hatred yeah so hitchcock has this very like elemental elemental uh essentialist view of women where they're often portrayed very negatively or chaotically. Um, but it's just truthful to his experience and it's truthful to uh, like constant global experience. Like the, uh, the birds is like this, this allegory, this like metaphor of a liberated, liberated free spirited woman pursuing a man and going to the small town and nature is literally unleashed because you've allowed <laughs> the woman to be free, yeah. uh, to be sexually free. And the, soon enough, everything is in ruins and everybody's being pecked to death by birds, um, which has, judging by the last 10 years, has proven to be true because everything is in a, a flaming rubble right now. <laughs> and we're at the end of civilization because everyone's so, I wouldn't really call it liberation because it's not actually sexual it's all like theoretically sexual and it's just about these like online academic like word sex things mm -hmm. no one's actually having sex um but portraying portraying women truthfully in that way is forbidden because all the like the sort of approved democrat ways of showing woman characters it's just has to be the opposite of truth and the opposite of stereotypes so all girls 
have to be interested in science, have no interest in love. They can never cry. Uh, so they're just these cold, grisly, horrible, like pieces of propaganda in modern movies. But uh, in something like Hitchcock, like they're, you know, it's very aestheticized and stylized and kind of like cold in a way. But it gets at essential truths of gender in a way that all art used to, <laughs> you know, because people are scared of, they think that um, depicting anything that actually reflects their own experience and not the propaganda outside of them is wrong. They think it's their duty to defy stereotypes and stereotypes are all rooted in truth. That's why they exist. So that's why nothing modern resonates with anyone. It just has this false kind of fake feeling of, okay, I guess all women are supernaturally powerful and they're all interested in science and they're very calm and not manipulative and <laughs> don't cry. And um, does anyone think this is real? No. <laughs> in, uh, in the Catholic Church, works of nonfiction, at least, have to, you know, if you're going to be considered like a doctrinally correct Catholic or whatever, a theologian, they have to go through what's called the censor librorum, which is the book censor. And then they have to get what's called the imprimatur from a bishop in order to be published and be taken seriously and as, you know, doctrinally, not correct, but acceptable by the church. Do you see a similar phenomenon happening in pop culture? To a degree, but it's all, it's all done, you know, people do it on their own. It's not like a larger like censor board that's doing it anymore. The propaganda is all in your head. So your artistic or creative vision is already censored before it even exits your brain because you've been taught that to do the opposite of the this list of the nebulous values that Democrats promote, to do the opposite of that is morally wrong and will magically harm a black person or a woman or a trans person. Not gays anymore. They hate gays. No, and yeah, gays, have, <laughs> gays have been proven to be uh, a problem. I've, I've been trying to convince my straight friends that I, I'd like, I no longer have cachet. You can't use me anymore. <laughs> oh, no. They, they hate us as much as they hate regular straight yeah. white men. Like... Possibly more, you know. <laughs> when you've got when you've got Dave Rubin, like the chief of the gay right wingers, calling everyone on his podcast a patriot, I think we're I think we probably jumped the shark. Well, it's because they're men. Because allowing male friendship and like male community to exist is a threat to their power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because men are smart mm -hmm. and uh, productive, as Polly would say, Apollonian things happen from the male mind. Um, and so their stigmatizing of all male friendships and like male affection as gay has effectively scared men off from like being connected to each other in any way. And even now, it's just like this, this ambient threat of white supremacy and Nazism or whatever. What is that objectively? It's men being friends online and telling jokes. <laughs> That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> so gays have proven a problem because... Uh, gays also have a history of like of like dissident thought yeah. and uh, yeah, that's know. I mean we're we're like the well not the original we're subversive though I mean mm -hmm. I don't know how like do you, do you have gay friends in town no okay online I do I so I have a lot of gay and trans and non-binary friends and this is a story I've told on this show before but like last year one of my non-binary friends. Like he had parties or they had parties all like all throughout the year. Like we were in the, in the apartment, just crammed, you know, many, many people. And it was a lot of fun. Like we, and we also kind of felt subversive because we were going against the mandates, but then they posted on their Facebook page or whatever their Facebook account, a picture on a trail outdoors, uh, like smiling, you know, just, just having fun on a trail, whatever it was. But then in the comments, made sure to say, uh, oh, I just took off my mask for this photo. Make sure you're always wearing a mask. I put it on as soon as it, as soon as it, uh, as the picture was snapped. Like, where are we that a subversive person who was hosting parties also needed to make sure that, that everyone else, you know, understood that, that, that the mask went right back on? That's something that comes from 
in 2020 or 2021 still believing that you can have a diverse or like ideologically diverse group of friends where everyone gets along, which I don't think that can happen from, Mm. from personal experience. Like it happened to me, as I said, so early on in 2015, 2016, and like my last like liberal friends who, by the way, I've stayed exactly the same and I haven't changed at all. And these people used to find me charming. (laughs) They, they, uh, the last holdouts of the liberal friends who believed they could be friends with a problematic person. I mean, they trickled off one by one, like, because I defended Roseanne. <laughs> there's a, there's always a final straw for them. And the power differential, to use one of their terms, uh, between uh, conservatives and liberals is so unequal. Conservatives understand what it's like to be persecuted for publicly saying something that you think liberals have never experienced that that's why liberals will will start up political conversations with anyone with strangers True. conservatives are constantly on guard constantly being overly nice because they just want to be accepted and not be abandoned socially by someone else but liberals their adherence to um their religious constellation, which tells them that if they don't personally go after each dissenting person in their life, then a fictional person of color will be harmed. This is this is what they think. This is their magical thinking. Just And the media activates it. Every time there's a holiday, you see around Thanksgiving, it's all like, it's your duty to tell everyone. They believe <laughs> that. And also, they can't recognize that the polarity has changed Mm -hmm. and people, especially that like my age millennials associate being a Democrat or a liberal with being a good person to such a degree that they cannot cross that line and realize that things have changed. And the authoritarian threat is not coming from the right right now. They can't rearrange their entire mind to, acknowledge that everything that they've thought and been doing has been wrong for the last few years. Uh, But it comes to get them in the end. Like they all have that problem. I'll get like these new kind of like liberal friends kind of orbiting me and talking to me and they know full well everything that I think, but they like having this little vacation from their judgmental social circles, which actually matter to them. Their appearance in those circles matter to them. So they'll kind of use you as a sordid little back alley thing where they can admit that they think it's gone too far, but they just like the social approval and the career ladder matters too much to these people. They will always choose that. They will always choose this nebulous changing ideology over you. You can't have liberal friends. (laughs) (laughs) If you're, you can't. So, so you mentioned vaporwave earlier. What's the, and also I read an, I read an article that made the case, and I'm I'm convinced by it, that Make America Great Again, contrary to what a lot of people think, so a lot of people think that Republicans and specifically the MAGA crowd, or at least Donald Trump, want to bring America back to the 50s where the woman was pre- you know barefoot and pregnant wearing her pearls while she vacuumed the, the carpet. And what this article said was that MAGA actually is pointing back to the 80s, the Reagan years. And also in right-wing circles, we're seeing all of this 80s aesthetic, Vaporwave and the, the Miami Vice font and uh, like synth music and things like that. What, uh, what do you think that's all about? Why the 80s and not, not some other era? Well, I've always liked the 80s. I think everyone likes the decade that they were, the time period that they were like right before they were born. Oh, okay. Because that's when you re- remember the world being like innocent, you know? <laughs> um that ex- okay, that explains why, so I was born in 82, that explains why when I was in junior high, all my friends were listening to like classic rock from the 70s. I never yeah. got into it, but yeah, okay. Because as you become, as time goes on and you become more aware of like the evils of the world, then mm-hmm. your associations with that time period are less than savory. Uh, but the 80s, to me, represents such a total like the opposite of the austerity and gray minimalism and sameness 
of the 2010s that mm-hmm. continues to this day where everything down to like fast food restaurants is leveled to the ground to eliminate any color, any reference to family or fun. Uh, it all has to be this kind of like grim adult child Peter Pan stasis where no one really grows up. Uh, they're not like the phases of life. It's just gray, 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 no carpet, no texture, no scent, no nothing. Yeah. Because and, and this is sold as like a value. It's a moral value. It's not, and it's a convenient one for them because it's cheap. It's mm-hmm. cheap to do that. It's cheaper to have these laminate floors that you just mop the vomit up off of rather than like carpet. Um, but the the 80s represents such a like like everyone in the 80s could get into this fun vision of open wealth and excess. Mm-hmm. And um <laughs> I don't know if I would even really call it like conservatism. Like on the like official timeline, it's always like, well, the 80s were a reaction against the hedonism and nihilism of the 70s, which, you know, of course is true. But like pulling back and looking at it culturally, it just seems that it was so rich and so much was going on, especially in music. And like boomers and Gen Xers have this like reflexive contempt for the 80s that seems really embarrassing when you're like younger and you see how great it was. Like like middle-aged people are always like, the bad 80s. Oh my God, my hair, shoulder pads, like all of this. Looks like everyone was having a great deal of fun. Uh-huh. But Trump's aesthetics were so 80s. He's like an 80s soap opera character that came from that era explicitly. Yeah. He's um, even got the and, feathered hair. Yeah, and everything. You know, Trump Tower with the gold pillars, the 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 open display of wealth. Like, mm-hmm. nothing makes liberals and, like, rich people more angry than open displays of wealth. Um, they can accept it in the context of like rap music and like if a minority is doing it, but open gaudy displays of wealth, which were like artificial on their own on soaps like Dallas and dynasty, like this really strikes them the wrong way. And people with actual money are so trained to not talk about it and not show it off and, just wear their little like yoga pants and uh it it really like strikes a nerve and makes them uncomfortable. So Trump like symbolizes like the opposite of all of the values of the 2010s, the gray minimalism, uh the the puritan atoning for original sin of you know, racism and all of this. Um but he also just created like a fun funny vision that you could get into uh that any that appealed to so many different people. Which I have noticed a change in my own aesthetic tastes. Like right now, so I've always liked like modern architecture and the clean lines and open concepts and all that stuff. And now I'm like house hunting, and I'm seeing some of these old houses with you know the floral wallpaper, the earwax gold appliances in the kitchen and stuff like that. And I'm like, I wouldn't change a thing. And I don't know. And also uh, suburbs. I've 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 always hated suburbs. I even at one point in my life shamefully called it called suburbs racist. And now it's like the the call of getting the fuck out of the city and living in a house that, you know, might have been constructed in the 70s and decorated in the 80s and, you know, the the elderly couple who owned it up to now died there and raised their family there is really appealing to me and I I don't know why I haven't changed my cultural viewpoints really but i i think it really you must subconsciously be realizing that all of the the look and the aesthetics of everything around you right now is reflective of the people's bizarre authoritarian values <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's, it's just unavoidable like it's all of those aesthetics are designed to create a feeling of sameness and fake equality that scolds certain people and excludes certain people who are viewed as problems, but it's, it's extremely political. And I'm not, I'm not like a fool who thinks that you can like go back. Like I'm not trad. There's no reversing the, the, the like forward course of history. There's no like putting women back in the kitchen and there's no all of this, but you can 
honestly appraise what has gone on and like take inspiration from the past uh, when a false artificial view of the world is being presented to you as the only option. And that option is not working out for anyone. And it's bringing down everyone's quality of life. All right, cool. Well, um, Jack, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I will see you in Austin in October. I'm going to put a link down to, to, for other people to join us in Austin in October, because it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, as someone who's been to an RU weekend before, um, I can tell you that it's going to be like a life-changing thing. So Sweet. Yeah. I'll see you Thanks. then. Thanks yeah. so much. Yeah, for sure. Why don't you tell people where they can find you if you want to plug your Twitter or podcast or anything like that? It's uh, patreon.com slash perfume nationalist. Uh, we alternate free and paywalled episodes. Like 70% of them are free on iTunes and Libsyn. So you can... You can listen to a bunch of them and see what it's all about uh, before subscribing. But in order to get the whole story, and it is a story, a continuing story, you have to listen to them all, preferably. Yeah. And they're long, they're long as shit, too. So yeah, like, they're long so, as shit. So buckle in, uh, learn to be bored. It's not a boring <laughs> podcast by any means. But like, you know, I mean, you're going to be listening to these really long episodes. But it is worth it. Uh, when, when Thad interviewed you, I listened to the first... I don't know, like six or seven episodes. Just it. I, I was telling my partner, I was like, "Man, I know I'm not in this guy's target demographic, but like, I feel like I, I think I am." It was, it was, <laughs> <laughs> he, That's how it happens. He, yeah, he he was like, he was like, and I just kept listening because I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And he was like, "Are you sure you're not in this guy's target demo? Like, it's okay if you are." Like, <laughs> it was, it was, it was a surreal experience to be honest. So, <laughs> well, that makes me happy to hear. Um, All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. We'll talk soon. Yeah, sure thing. All right, thanks again to Jack for joining me today, and thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. If you like what you heard on this episode and you wish you had gotten a little bit more and gotten it a little bit earlier, head to blackbirdpodcast.com and sign up for the paid subscription, which only costs you $7 a month or $70 a year. And for those who are math-challenged, that is two free months. If you liked what you heard just enough and it was just on time for you, Head to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with just your email address. Don't send me any money. That's perfectly fine. That will get you an email update every time I release a podcast episode or a piece of written content that I don't mark as premium. Both of those ways really help support the show. Other ways you can support me are by leaving ratings and reviews at iTunes. Make sure you do that because it boosts the algorithm. And also, be sure you're following me on Twitter at JamesLJ and on Telegram at t.me slash learn to see. And with that, this is yet another episode of Blackbird in the Can. And until next time, live free.